Near the beginning of World War II, Dorothy Sayers wrote a radio play on the life of Christ. And it was to be broadcast on the BBC in 12 acts over a period of about a year. It was called The Man Born to be King. It was reviled by atheists because it was religious programming. And it was opposed by many Christians as blasphemy because it used a human actor to portray Jesus. Now, most of it is direct quotes from Scripture, but it's also her imagination, designed to present the story of the gospel in a way that people could hear it and embrace it in a fresh way, especially when hope and encouragement were so needed in wartime. And the very first act is about the birth of Christ, but also the visit of the wise men. And she has the three wise men represent different positions. The first one is concerned with wisdom. The second one, power. But the third one that she names Balthazar, or this traditional name, is concerned about sorrow. And this is his speech and Mary's response. He says, I speak for sorrowful people, for the ignorant and the poor. We rise up to labor and we lie down to sleep, and night is only a pause between one burden and another. Fear is our daily companion, the fear of want, the fear of war, the fear of cruel death, and still more cruel life. But all this we could bear if we knew that we did not suffer in vain, that God was beside us in the struggle, sharing the miseries of his own world. For the riddle that torments the world is this, shall sorrow and love be reconciled at last when the promised kingdom comes. This is Mary's response. These are very difficult questions. But with me, you see, it's like this. When the angel's message came to me, the Lord put a song into my heart. I suddenly saw that wealth and cleverness were nothing to God. No one is too unimportant to be his friend. That was the thought that came to me because of the things that have happened to me. I am quite humbly born, yet the power of God came upon me. Very foolish and unlearned, yet the word of God was spoken to me. And I was in deep distress when my baby was born and filled my life with love. So I know very well that wisdom and power and sorrow can live together with love. And for me, the child in my arms is the answer to all riddles. We stand in a new year with plenty of riddles of our own. It's Sunday of the Epiphany, a time to see the light of Christ spreading to all the earth, the message of God to all peoples. This day is kind of a hinge in a way. It's, it's still Christmas. I mean, we're still pondering the mystery of the incarnation. But that truth is beginning to turn outward, calling us forward into the new year and into the mission of God for the world. Now, often on this day, we read from some earlier verses in Matthew chapter 2, right? The visit of the Magi to find Jesus and worship him. That's, that's the usual passage for epiphany. And epiphany is a word that means to show, to declare. It's the manifesting of the good news of salvation to those beyond the Jewish family. Well, today we're reading just a little further ahead, a different kind of manifesting. And yet it's epiphany all the same. It's the flight into Egypt taken by the Holy Family to protect the life of the child. It's necessary when King Herod, always nervous about his power and doing all he can to hold on to it, 
decides to seek for this rumored king born in Bethlehem and destroy him. So after the wise men leave, Joseph has a dream in which he is warned of this threat and he's told to take swift action for refuge. He obeys immediately and they escape to Egypt. You know, this is a significant episode in a number of ways, and usually we skip over it fairly quickly. I mean, have you heard many sermons on the flight to Egypt? I have not. We're used to kind of the touching portrayals of the manger scene and, and all of that around Christmas, and then uh, we, we pick up later when Jesus is an adult. So generally, we don't even consider the, a lot of these childhood uh, narratives that we have about Jesus. We tend to treat his childhood as a footnote rather than looking to what we can discover about the events that shape who he will become. Now, there's much we don't know, of course, about Jesus as a child and as an adolescent. So what we are told becomes so much more important. There was a popular trade route between Judea and Egypt called the Via Maris. And it's likely that they followed this path. In Alexandria and in Elephantine, Egypt, there were sizable Jewish populations. Uh, So it's likely they could have settled in a place like that, with Joseph finding carpentry work in wood and stone. Now, how long they were there, we don't know. It could have been as much as two years until Herod died. But Egypt looms large in Israel's story. First, it's a place of servitude, as Joseph's brothers traffic him to passing caravans for Egypt, if you remember that story from Genesis. It then becomes a place of unjust imprisonment for Joseph. And then as Joseph is released from prison because of his gifts and he's elevated to power and leadership, Egypt serves as a means of life when Jacob and his family find their home there in the midst of a global famine. Over time, though, this turns to oppression and slavery for hundreds of years until God raises up the deliverer in Moses and he frees his people to return to the promised land. You know, Egypt remains a powerful symbol as an opponent to Israel, really, to this very day. In modern times, they were at war for 30 years. Uh, Some of you will remember the signing of the Camp David Accords in 1978 that President Carter really worked to bring about between Egypt and Israel. And I remember watching it, uh, I think I watched it live because that was all you could do back back then. And I remember they were, they were seated or talking, it was President Sadat from Egypt, and it was Prime Minister Menachem Begin from Israel and President Carter, and they were all saying how hard the President Carter had worked, how diligent he had been to help bring this about. And the Prime Minister of Israel said, yes, he worked almost as hard as my ancestors in Egypt building the pyramids. A little dig there, right? And there was some nervous laughter. But that's how important Egypt remains and how important Egypt is to this story, the story of God's people, the story of God's salvation. Egypt isn't just a a type of prophetic device for Matthew. It also really is home to Jesus. I mean, it's his home. I mean, when you're under two years of age, any place you live for up to two years is a lifetime. And it's important. Now, what they did there, we don't know. And I think we want to be careful not to speculate too much unless we just say that's speculation. But really, in a way, and hear me carefully, Jesus becomes Egyptian. 
Not officially, right? But this is what happens when you take children to other cultures, even very small ones. We see this in our missionary families. Uh, I mean, I have the privilege of seeing that up close with families like the Hanlons, where their children are either born in Rwanda or taken to Rwanda at a very young age. And when they're very, very small, they start to say words that are actually Kinyawanda. And they have this sort of cultural openness. And they learn these things. They don't live in a bubble. Egypt becomes Jesus' adopted homeland, at least for a time. I mean, do you remember what happened when Jacob met his Egyptian grandchildren? You know, he had some, right? They were the sons of Joseph and his Egyptian wife, and they were named Ephraim and Manasseh. And when he sees them, he says, they are mine. They are mine. And they become tribes of Israel. So in Egypt, the young child Jesus plays in places where his ancestors had lived. The God incarnate, his presence in the form of a small boy is manifest in Egypt. Think about that. I mean, we see already not only the echoes of Israel's story, but we see God reaching beyond. I think this is an epiphany of its own kind. It's subtle, it's in the form of a child, but it's real. I mean, who knows what kind of experiences people had with the boy Jesus there that we can only imagine. I mean, if we go over to Luke's gospel, Anna and Simeon recognize who Jesus is when he's just this small child, and their lives were forever changed. Were there those in Egypt who also had that recognition? Whose lives were changed by meeting this young child? Are there those now that see and receive Jesus that we aren't aware of? Or that receive him and challenge our own prejudices? You see, Egypt shows us the identification of Jesus with Israel's story. It's also refuge and protection for him. And it's a sign that this gospel cannot be contained within certain borders. It is reaching out. Perhaps we've not thought either about how risky and dangerous this incarnation was. I mean, the journey to Bethlehem for a woman about to give birth, the precarious existence of a poor family in the Roman Empire, the rage of a despot willing to do anything to cling to power. By the way, maybe you know Herod had killed two of his sons and other family members if they were a threat to his throne. You see, the world is broken and violent, full of hardship and dangers. This is the way it was in the first century, and it remains so in so many ways. So Jesus' entry to the world, the, the truth we celebrate at Christmas and share with others at Epiphany, is that God's arrival on the human scene comes to us not in power, not in privilege, not in safety, but in humility and great vulnerability. And it's good news for that very reason. As Sayers has Balthazar ask, can sorrow and love be reconciled? Mary responds that the child in her arms is that reconciliation. You know, things could have gone wrong at any point. Really. I mean, they're fragile, this situation with Jesus. Fraught with risks of all kinds and subject to human decision as well. God risked so much on human frailty. 
In the flight to Egypt, the Holy Family joins with so many in their time and in ours who leave home not of their own will, but out of desperate need. Perhaps for safety, for hunger, or desire to escape poverty. You may know that there are those today who object to calling Jesus a refugee, who say we should never say that. They claim that since it was all the Roman Empire, they weren't really leaving their home, they were just moving to another location. But I think if we're really honest about it, Joseph and Mary and Jesus fit the definition. They were in danger. They did not leave of their own choice. And they went to a place where they were considered foreign. And in so doing, they joined the ranks of millions upon millions who find themselves without a home and in dangerous circumstances. And by the way, there are over 80 million today in our world. Jesus, as a human child in his time and circumstance, was very much a child at risk. Born to very humble surroundings. And he was subject to all that children faced then. And so many face today. I mean, he needed to eat, right? He needed to be healthy to avoid disease. He needed nurture and protection. He needed a safe place to live and grow up. And these things were often a challenge. And the flight to Egypt shows us that. I know there are some who say, no, Jesus had this bubble of protection around him. Nothing could have ever gone wrong. I just, I don't buy that. I think the incarnation says he came to be among us as one of us. And he let go of all that he could have held on to. He entered our world in the way that we enter our world. Today, children continue in our world to be the most vulnerable. They're vulnerable in the womb. They're vulnerable in the first years of life. They're vulnerable as adolescents moving into adulthood. And the life of Jesus, the gospel, touches these places with grace and dignity. And there are concern then for the church, for our life and our mission. But, thankfully, we celebrate in this story that God is the one who provides the safety. And God is the one who makes provision for them. You see, the Holy Family's time of seeking refuge in Egypt shows us God's faithfulness. It's God who's guiding and leading. It's God who's giving protection. But it also reveals human response to divine direction. On several occasions, Joseph responds immediately in obedience to what he's told. I mean, what if he had said no? What if he had delayed? It's indicative of his character that he was a righteous man who heeded the Lord's direction and was willing to put his own life and livelihood at risk in order to obey God. In so doing, Jesus is given a home. In Bethlehem, in Egypt, in Nazareth. He has a heavenly father, of course. He's son of the Most High, but he has an earthly father who has the character to instill in him as he's growing these very traits, to teach him these things. In his adult ministry, Jesus famous, famously tells those who want to follow him that he doesn't have a palace, he doesn't have fancy headquarters, he doesn't have a nice corner office. What does he say? He says, the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He declares that his true home is in the Father and being about what the Father has shown him to do. Through all the various circumstances of life, including the time in Egypt, 
Jesus' home was not the locale or geography or the street address of his abode. It was in the Father. And he calls us to that true home as well. This is the place I think we're really looking for, whether we know it or not. And this is what we offer to others in the shining light of Epiphany, the way to our true home. In his book, The Longing for Home, Frederick Buechner says that we all have some concept of home, a place of security and love and goodness, and we're always trying to get there. Our highest hopes and our aspirations and also our anxieties and addictions are in many ways just our efforts to find home. The challenges of the last year, we, we know them, don't we, so well now? And they lead us now into the new year of 2021. They have exposed our need for home in ways that we have may, not, may not have known before. It revealed our fears, our dark places, our lack of real control. And it revealed our desire for home. Not the house we've been isolating in, but the place of the heart that finds its refuge in God. You know, we long for home that is free from the fear of death and disease, don't we? We desire a home where all people are honored and that we are at peace with others. And we desperately want to follow one who is full of grace and truth, light and life. The king who was once a refugee, a migrant from heaven to earth, shows us the home that we long for. Moving into this new year, we can choose to be at home, to go home, meaning there are choices that we can make that help us to be more in that place of home with God, to know the place we fully desire, the depth of our being. And sometimes these are big choices, but I think often they're just small everyday things that order us, that add up. What are we feeding on? I mean, what are we watching? What are we reading? What are we giving our attention to? How are we caring for ourselves, body and soul? How are we caring for others with selflessness and also with risk? You see, each step in response to the gentle leading of the Spirit either takes us closer or further away from our true home. We want to know this home. We want to be there. In an epiphany, we desire for others to know and experience it as well. <clears throat> I started with Dorothy Sayers, so I may as well continue in a theme <clears throat> and finish with a poem by G.K. Chesterton. It's from his poem, The House of Christmas. There fared a mother driven forth out of an inn to Rome. In the place where she was homeless, all men are at home. The crazy stable close at hand with shaking timber and sifting sand grew a stronger thing to abide and stand than the square stones of Rome. To an open house in the evening, home shall men come. To an older place than Eden and a taller town than Rome. To the end of the way of the wandering star, to the things that cannot be and that are. To the place where God was homeless, all men are at home. Amen.